Hi, and welcome to The Mean. I'm Ryan Huber, and joining me as always is Nick Seagraves. Hey, Nick. Hey, Ryan. So you and I have been thinking a lot lately about Stanley Kubrick and his art form, American cinema, and how his ideas intersect with deeper anthropological cultural philosophical ideas and since i recently reviewed the shining really watched it carefully did what some people would call a deep reading of it uh watched the fan kind of documentary 230 room 237 um today we're gonna do a deep dive into the shining but before we do that i wanted um I wanted you to to give us a little bit of a setting as to your because you've you've done a lot of Kubricking in your life, and I was thinking maybe you could give us an idea of your not just your experience with watching Kubrick's films, but of your impression of him as an artist. And so, uh, what what is he to you? Like, what is Stanley Kubrick? For me, he is the representation of good film, which sounds really like lofty, but I grew up reading more than I watched film and I viewed visual mediums kind of as below that for whatever like stuck up reason I had. And I just remember seeing The Shining and 2001 A Space Odyssey and even things like Barry Lyndon later on in my life and just being completely blown away by the level of depth and artistry that he could create in a medium that I think sometimes is more associated with like prequel, sequel, James Cameron, fun zone. Yeah. So you mentioned a few of Kubrick's films. What, when you, cause I know that you're a researcher when you started to kind of look into who he was as a person, um, what did you find? Like, what did you discover about who Kubrick was that influenced these films to be so significant for you? Well, I was lucky because I was really good friends with a film major who used to carry around this giant 800 page Kubrick biography. (laughs) So a lot of my early stuff, convenient. Yeah. (laughs) A lot of the early stuff I learned was through osmosis, um, like just through him And you start off with the stereotypical stuff. He was almost hysterical when it came to detail, Uh, Mm -hmm. being someone who would reshoot and reshoot and reshoot. Mm -hmm. And And this is important when you and I start to discuss some of his films, particularly when we start to discuss The Shining, because some things that with other directors you would say, well, ooh, that's a goof, that's a mistake. It would be nearly impossible to attribute that to Kubrick, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is someone who, for Barry Lyndon, wanted to shoot interior scenes by actual candlelight. Um, and if you're not aware of like how film actually works, is it's very difficult to get enough light from candles yep. to to yep. shoot a scene. So he found these huge lenses that I think they used for 
I don't even know why the studio had them that were just obscure. And he like that's how much he was obsessed with detail. So if I'm going to do a period piece where they do not have electric lighting, then I'm going to shoot interior scenes by candlelight alone. Um, and that bleeds into all other films. He's also famous for, as you sort of alluded to, the marathon sessions of shooting one scene over and over and over and over and over again, like not allowing his actors. I would say he's probably violated some some labor laws <laughs> um, because he'll take a very what what you would think would be a relatively minor scene, but he'll work on it for 18 hours or he'll shoot it for a week or he'll just he'll beat it to death. It's almost like he's doing something psychologically to the actors. Yeah. I mean, the, the film we're talking about today, The Shining actually holds the Guinness World Book of Records for the amount of retakes of a scene with dialogue. Uh, 127. So um, the famous scene where uh, Wendy is walking backwards on the staircase and Jack is approaching her. He, she's got the baseball bat. She's got the baseball bat. She's sweating and freaking out in that weird turtleneck. And mm-hmm. he made them shoot that 127 times. So it's... so any other general Kubrick things that we should know about Kubrick as, a, as an artist or things that themes of his work in general before we dive into The Shining? Anything else that we need to know about this, about sort of setting the scene uh, in case... And once again, guys, if you haven't seen The Shining, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, go watch The Shining. Pause the podcast, go watch The Shining, or at least watch a, some kind of super cut of it, and then come back and listen to the podcast. Because this won't make much sense to you if you don't know who Stanley Kubrick is or if you haven't seen The Shining. So be warned. But any other general or global comments that you feel like need to be made before we jump into The Shining? Yeah, he also has a reputation of being very austere in terms of style. Um, So he feels like his characters are kind of cold-ish. There's not a lot of, like, gushy, gushy romanticism in Kubrick films. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can definitely see that in The The Shining. And also, he's not afraid of genre is another Mm. big thing. So you, you do have these, like, huge film big name guys who are the artsy director writer people um but they normally stick to like a very specific genre um but with kubrick he goes from sci-fi to horror which is what we're talking about today to period pieces to weird psychosexual luminati business Mm-hmm. So it's kind of all over the place. And you and I are both familiar with the sort of discussion surrounding genre in both literature and film. But maybe you could enlighten our audience a little bit. Why would a director be afraid of genre? Genre pieces tend to be looked down upon by serious critics. And I'm, I'm like air quoting. You obviously can't see that. Um, yeah. <clears throat> but it's because genre by definition is identified by trope. So if you write a Western and it's about robots in space who are fighting an intergalactic conspiracy, smuggling spice or whatever, people would be like, well, this isn't a Western because it doesn't have cowboys. It doesn't have the West. Things like that. Or if you write a horror thing, you have all of the tropes that come with horror film. 
And it's really hard to go into uh, writing or directing or whatever medium and try to breathe something truly new into that because it is so bound by trope. And so a lot of critics will immediately dismiss all genres because they so it's are kind really of seen tropey. as like it, it's kind of seen as like painting by numbers, right? Yes. Things are already set up for you. You're not really doing truly original work because you have the gunslinger or the man in black or the sentient robot or whatever. So you have these almost pre you have these prepared, like you said, tropes, but some people might not be familiar with the word trope. These are familiar thought lines or guidelines of thought um, that are easily recognizable. If you've ever read um, Campbell's book about heroes and myths and legends, he kind of goes over some of the major kinds of tropes. And so genres look down upon because it's seen as like, well, you're not really doing truly original work. You're you're building on the back of these um, established kind of canons of creativity or of thought and so when you say kubrick isn't afraid of genre what do you mean i mean he was willing to go into this uh genre that could be considered lower and take it seriously is what i really mean because to be fair to to, to critics and to literary critics and film theorists and people like that, most of the things in genre film film and writing are, are bad. They're bad. I mean, you could walk into a Barnes and Noble and go to the sci-fi section and you'll just see walls and walls and walls of just not great books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, not they all a, have some similarities. Yeah. And they're kind of like variations on a theme. Mm-hmm. And you have it with all the genres, with mystery, with romance, any of those things. Well, um, then, even like in very popular works that seem very original, you'll see that the author is kind of cleverly combining, overlapping, or kind of mutating genres. One example that sticks out in my mind is J.K. Rowling. So... In her Harry Potter books, she took the Buildings Roman, which is um, a coming of age tale. That's that's the genre is a Buildings Roman, uh, the you know self discovery, someone sort of coming into adulthood, and she combined it with uh, fantasy and the structure of a mystery, at least for the first five or six books. So each of the first five definitely uh, books, they are. They are paced like a mystery. There is a mystery that needs to be solved. Who is behind X? You know, who who done it, basically. But you also have the complexities of sort of the adolescent growing up, you know, boy-girl feelings or whatever, sexuality, um, so, social realities of a school environment. But also then you combine it with the witchcraft and wizardry. So I think part of her genius is that she took three genres and she wove them together in a way that... I don't think upon first reading, most people would say, oh, this is three different genres. It seems almost completely original. And I think that's the art form. Or the the new genre that's only existed for a few decades, the space cowboy genre that many would attribute to George Lucas with Han Solo, right? Mm-hmm. It's a Western, but it's in space. Yeah. You can take that way, this kind of synthesis of genres but there's also and i think this is what kubrick does and it's so rare is kind of breathing i want to say a new like lifeblood into something that seems so dead 
in hackneyed and yeah. putting putting pressure on the genre in new and original ways exactly and i think a, a good very popular film that does this is the dark knight so mm. you have something like superhero movies which are either funny or they're way too serious and they're baroque and huge and obviously i mean that's what it's about but with the dark knight it was kind of someone really hitting this this note that was always there in batman that always was within his character of trying to balance a strict internal code with you know horrible realities but just taking that it's almost like taking it seriously i don't know if i'm mm -hmm. really communicating that well but yeah take, i think when you when you say taking it seriously you mean something like entering into the world and playing by its rules but pushing it to an even further conclusion than someone would do on the surface exactly and in and in contrast i know this is kind of tangential but something like the new Superman movies do a really bad job at this, in my opinion, where, you know, they, they're not really trying to discover what it would be like to be a god. Yeah. And, and we've talked about that before. Um, but it is kind of like those missed opportunities. They rely too much on the tropes of it's hard having superpowers and oh, no, there's something really bad happening instead of focusing on things that are actually maybe not as well explored mm -hmm. within the the world of Superman. Yeah, but Snyder doesn't even I know we're getting off into left field here, but Snyder doesn't even push on the tropes like no. he doesn't he, he doesn't even really engage them. He's like, wouldn't it be cool if we spent 45 minutes destroying the city? And literally not caring about the millions of people who are obviously dying. And then what we'll do is introduce one character that we're supposed to care about whether they live or die. Mm -hmm. It's just, let's, I can't talk. We need to do a whole thing on Snyder sometime. We, I just, we'll do that. So, we'll do Snyder that. is the anti-Kubrick. Yes. To stay on topic, we'll just say he is the exact opposite of Stanley Kubrick. Yes. Just stop it. <laughs> just stop letting him make movies, please. I just don't oh. understand why. I mean, we don't need to start talking about that, but I just I don't understand. I can't. All right. So back to good movies. For people who totally ignored our spoiler alert and just want a podcast and don't want to go watch a two and a half hour horror film, could you lay out the just the the barest details of The Shining, um, mostly the movie, but where there are important differences with the book written by Stephen King? Just give us just lay lay the groundwork for a discussion of The Shining. Okay, so. There's a dude named Jack, played by Jack Nicholson. Confusing, mm -hmm. I know. I don't know if we should try to differentiate between that, but whatever. When we talk about the actor, we'll, we'll say Nicholson. Okay, sounds good. Jack and his family, made up of his wife, Wendy, who is a weird type of almost like genetic monster between a horse and a scarecrow dressed as a middle school art teacher. And <laughs> that's then, the film version. That's the film version. Um... <laughs> We're and not sure what exactly what she looks like in the book. Version. Yeah, <laughs> that's up. That's left up to the reader's imagination, and their son. Let the, let the reader discern. <laughs> and their son Danny, who has like this weird mullet cut type thing, and he takes a job as a caretaker for a hotel in its off season. So this is a hotel called the Overlook Hotel in Colorado, and it's completely isolated because it's a ski resort. So it's up on yep. a mountain. And during the intense winter months, obviously no one's there and they have to have someone instead of keeping the full staff, they hire someone to take care of the hotel. Mm -hmm. And Jack agrees. And um, this is great 
opportunity for him because he's a struggling writer and an alcoholic. Who knew? Who would ever think? Who knew there were books and screenplays out there about struggling writers? I've never seen... This is actually my first time ever hearing about it. It's... Um... (laughs) So, Sorry about that. <laughs> no problem. And he and his family move in. They get introduced to it. They meet a funny uh, dude. Is he the chef? Is 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 the African American guy the chef? Or... Yes, he is the head. He is the okay. head chef. And um, they settle in. And as the winter goes on and the isolation continues. Jack begins to crack and there's all these weird, strange phantasm occurrences happening of um, I'm sure if you've never even seen the film, you are aware that there are twins in a hallway talking at a camera. Um, Yeah, we should say that even if you haven't seen this movie, you've been influenced by it. Yes. Um, There are all these. There's an iconography. Um, Also, if you've ever heard someone saying red rum, red rum, red rum. Um. And it's it just, that's like the bare minimum plot. By the end of the film, spoiler, Jack completely cracks, or maybe he was always correct. Who knows? And so just, just to bring some data here, because mm-hmm. my memory is just as bad as yours. <laughs> um, Jack Torrance is the lead, played by Jack Nicholson. Yes. She- Shelley Duvall plays Wendy Torrance. Danny Lloyd plays Danny. Man, they have a Jack and a Danny. Yeah, that's really They're strange. Jacks and Danny's. I don't know if that's a coincidence. We'll have to talk about that in mm-hmm. a little bit. And then uh, Scatman Crothers plays uh, Halloran, Halloran, who is... is the head chef. Okay. Do you okay. want the rest of the cast? No, no. <laughs> I'm good. I'm just like, I'm still kind of taken aback by Danny, Danny, Jack, Jack. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Anyways. Um, and by the end of the film, he goes nuts. He chases his wife and child around with an axe and tries to murder them and follows them into a frozen hedge mage and freezes to death in the snow. Um, and sprinkled throughout this, as I mentioned earlier, are some weird occurrences. The most obvious from the beginning of the film is Danny. Um, so he is... I think in modern terms, we'd probably say he's somewhere on a spectrum, if that makes sense. Uh, mm-hmm. he, the, he is not a an entirely um, what people would call normal uh, child. He he has a he has a very powerful imagination. Yes, uh, he he has an imaginary friend named Tony who freaks me out. Mm-hmm. And and when he's asked who is Tony, this is before he, they even get to the to the outlook. By the way. What does he say? Because he has like a little seizure type thing. Yeah, he and, are you talking about like what Tony actually is according to yeah? Tony? Because the doctor, because the doc, the lady doctor is like, hey, who's Tony? <laughs> he what says is Tony? he says that Tony is a rat that lives in the back of his mouth. Which yes, so he's a little boy. He likes to ride his big wheel around, and he apparently has a, an imaginary rat living in his mouth. Which is further complicated by the fact that when Tony does speak through Danny, it, it it's through his index finger on his left hand. Yeah, so, so he holds up his his index finger as if that's the that is who Tony is. Yeah, so it's it's weird that it's a rat in his mouth, but also apparently a talking finger. Um, and and Tony's voice sounds something like, 
I'm sorry, Mrs. Torrance. Danny's not here. Yeah, it sounds like uh, any general writer for The New Yorker, I guess, on a Monday. But it's... It, it's <laughs> yeah, it sounds, like, uh, it sounds like the lady from Monsters, Inc. Like, yes. hello, hello, Wazowski. <laughs> yeah, so that's Tony. And I think when you're introduced to the whole Tony thing, you're like, okay, this kid's a little weird. Mm-hmm. Um whatever everyone has imaginary friends maybe his is a little bit more like disgusting because my imaginary friends Mm -hmm. were like giant bears and like fun stuff and not Mm -hmm. vermin living in my vocal cords um but (laughs) he he then when he talks to the uh what's the chef's name again halloran halloran uh it's a really strange scene because I think it might be the first time where you really experience something uh, paranormal happening in the film. Yeah, it's weird. Um, but the Howard is talking to Jack and um, I already forgot her name again. <laughs> Wendy. Wendy. And while he's talking to them, the audio kind of fades and he begins almost like telepathically communicating to Danny uh, about mm-hmm. like eating ice cream or something. Mm-hmm. And he later, as as he's talking to Danny one on one, he explains that they both have this thing called Shocker, The Shining. The which, Shining. You know, the name and let's the- let's pause here. Let's pause here. This is important. So Kubrick, who's known for delving into the depths of what I'll call material evil, mm-hmm. and by material evil, I mean the things that are morally condemned by people but that we associate with things like there's something wrong with your brain or you were brought up the wrong way or there is an easy explanation for why you know it's ca- causality is not a big you know issue with this kind of material evil that kubrick kubrick likes to plumb the depths of non-supernatural human evil and and we'll we'll point this out in a little bit when we talk about the differences between the book and the movie this is in contradistinction to Stephen King, who wrote the original story, who likes to bring in evil from the outside, like forces, supernatural forces of evil that act upon people, much as uh, classical tragedies would do, right? Like in classical tragedies, there are things outside of the control. Now that I think about this, this is kind of a classical tragedy because you, ha- you do have tragic flaws, right, in yes. your tragic heroes. But then you have forces outside of their control that catalyze those flaws. We'll get we'll get there in a in a minute when we talk about the differences between the book and the movie. But it's important that we establish that Kubrick's universe for The Shining is a universe in which a materialistic worldview cannot hold. In other words, there are things that are not explainable simply by scientific or natural means, right? Yes. And I've I've read some interpretations of the film that try to turn it into this completely psychological uh, drama, um, kind of about abuse or alcoholism or capitalism, whatever. But I th- I think you you can't overlook something like that that initial scene in and of itself. Like maybe ghosts don't exist or whatever, but yeah. t- psychic abilities do apparently. You know, so because it's. It's not even a subjective experience because um, they look at each other and they understand and they ta- and they reference it later. So it's not just Danny is projecting this happening. Um, mm-hmm. They both know it's happening. And in fact, later in the film, Danny, through The Shining, calls out to him, you know, to come mm-hmm. help. 
And he's like, and then Jack has a conversation with a either psychological projection or a ghost that is a bartender from the 1920s who says, your son is trying to bring someone into this from the outside. And he is an N-word. He refers to him derogatorily and, you know, using a racial epithet. But this is important because it means that even if the bartender is a psychological projection of Jack, it means that somehow he's aware that the African-American chef who went to go, like, take his vacation or whatever in Miami, Florida, that that he's on his way back to the hotel. Like, isn't that but wouldn't that be bizarre if we were playing by the rules of, you know, a, a materialistic worldview? And that's why any serious reading has to account for that. You you cannot reduce it um, outside of the supernatural. And I think Kubrick does that on purpose because it would be a lot less interesting if it were simply, this is a guy who's going crazy and everything can be explained that mm-hmm. way. Well, and that, I think that brings up a good point to go back to what we were talking about earlier with um, not being afraid of genre. Part of not being afraid of genre is also respecting the genre itself so you can't be like i'm going to make a a really good horror film and i want to do all the things that horror films do wrong i want there to be believable characters i want there to be subtlety in some way i want it not to rely on uh loud noises and teenagers having premarital sex and getting their heads cut off or whatever um but you can't not include the things that make the genre the genre like you can't have a horror movie that isn't it doesn't have this uncanniness to it like that is what horror is about and so and i think that's kubrick's tip to in in king's direction and i'm not saying that stanley kubrick was trying to make stephen king feel better Mm -hmm. but i'm saying the kind of artist that kubrick was he was tipping his hat to the kind of writer that stephen king is yeah. In other words, he was saying, hey, I'm not going to go full supernatural evil here. I'm not going to go full easily explainable. There's a dark force and there's some orb crystal that's making people do bad things. But I am going to leave it in doubt whether or not this is a strictly psychological thriller or whether there is some kind of demonic or otherworldly power at work in this family and in this hotel. And as the story progresses those occurrences seem to build up quicker um they they are more frequent uh so you you move to more and more horrifying images and surreal images because obviously it's one thing to telepathically communicate to somebody but i mean danny also sees um an elevator (laughs) open up that has just been like filled with blood and mm-hmm. so you have this slow motion elevator opening and just an entire hallway being just covered. Actually, the, cra- the crazy thing is the elevator doesn't even open. Oh, the really? Seeps, the blood seeps in from like what would be the sides of the doors of the elevator. Mm, almost and like it's actually, spontaneously filled. Like it's bleeding. Yeah, yeah like, it's, like it's bleeding out of the sides of it. That's one thing that in, the, in that fan kind of documentary, Room 237, the guy who's doing the Native American interpretation is talking about how even though we try to keep the blood out, it comes in kind of mm-hmm. a thing. I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, it's tenuous, but, yeah. um, but I think there's something important in what you just said about Danny's, <clears throat> Danny's visions and Wendy starts to have them too towards the end, actually. Uh, Danny's visions get more 
disturbing and more frequent as the as the story goes on. So there is a feeling of this this is ratcheting up or becoming more intense or there's kind of an invasion from another place. Mm-hmm. The line between the two uh, worlds, as it were, is becoming thinner. Um, mm-hmm. And to bring it back to the medium of film, the really interesting thing is that when Danny is having these visions, there are always shots of Danny. So when he sees the two girls, the two twins in the hallway who are like, come play with us, mm-hmm. um, it pans back to Danny so that we can see what Danny is seeing in his face, you know? Yeah. And when he sees them murdered in a, in a really quick cut all over the floor, blood everywhere, axes, yep. it goes back to Danny covering his eyes. And every time Danny sees anything like that, it's a perspective shot. And even mm-hmm. when he's shooting around the hotel on his little bike thing, um, mm-hmm. he's being followed by this continuous steady cam. So it's this, almost like something we are watching Danny do that. And in contrast to this, when Jack talks to the bartender in the scene where he, you know, kind of verifies that the shining is real enough for other things, other persons to know of, it's just a normal shot. It's like he's talking to his wife. Uh, There isn't this kind of hovering over the shoulder or some type of perspective. Mm -hmm. It's almost a very clean objective uh, shot of the conversation so it i think kubrick for whatever reason was really trying to put a large amount of subjectivity in danny um and kind of did you ever play mario kart 64 <laughs> so part of mario kart 64 is that there there are camera angles and the camera angles are provided by these like floating ghost cameramen. Do, do you remember no, this? They're they are turtles with a Sorry. camera hanging from the end of a fishing pole while they float on a cloud that has a face. That's what they are. Yeah. That's what I was thinking when you were talking about the steady cam, like yeah. uh, the steady cam shots of of Danny kind of um triking around the hotel. Well, I'm glad you brought that up just really quickly because I think that actually, for people who haven't heard a lot of film criticism, I think the term subjective shot and objective shot can be really weird, uh, can be maybe confusing. But Mario Kart actually does a really good job at explaining those things. So when you're driving in Mario Kart, um, Mm -hmm. the camera, it's not not first person. So it's not like it's from your eyes Mm -hmm. as Bowser or whatever. It's from behind you. It's from behind you. But because it moves with you in a certain way and it follows you, it's like it's your perspective. But when you fall Mm -hmm. off the rail and you're kind of (laughs) wheeled up by whatever ungodly servants of the Mushroom Kingdom that are involved with this Mm -hmm. tournament of death, um, you're, you're suddenly aware that you're watching yourself being pulled up because the camera is is away and it's stationary so kind of that Mm -hmm. that's what i'm talking about between a subjective and an objective uh shot if that makes sense yeah and i was just thinking of that in terms of kubrick shoots a lot of the danny scenes as if there's a cameraman Mm -hmm. as if there's a person following danny and that's that's a pretty common horror move right of shooting something to give you the sense that someone's following this person. Now, it's kind of you as the audience following this person, but that doesn't fully explain it. You as the audience are following along with 
someone following the person. Hmm. Especially if the music gives you an indication that something bad is happening, right? Yeah. And it's that's it, part of what a horror movie does is that it it sets you in a place where you're like, I'm watching this, but I'm watching this with an evil person. And it's done the worst when it's like there's like bushes and branches like obfuscate like making it mm-hmm. hard to mm-hmm. see like ooh it's in the bush like and Kubrick yeah. obviously doesn't yeah. do anything like that but I think you're absolutely right when Danny is riding his tricycle or whatever it is big wheels he it it, it is as if he is actually move trying to almost get away from this thing that is yeah. constantly just following if, him through the If hotel. you wanted to read this as a ghost story or a demon possession story, those shots would lend you material mm-hmm. to, you know, to propound those theories. And because it's a study cam, which was this was really groundbreaking at the time the amount of study cam usage that Kubrick was doing, it's mm-hmm. also weirdly not human though. Because no, it's floating. Yeah, because if you like have you ever seen Evil Dead? Uh, have you ever seen the Bourne movies? No, it's actually. the most jarring. <laughs> it's like the Bourne movies are fun, but the camera work is obviously a human with a camera running around because it's the bounciest, mm-hmm. most. St- it's the this is not a word, but it's the steppiest camera work. Like you can feel each step the cameraman is taking. Yeah, and. This, what we're talking about, is the opposite of that. It's smooth. It's almost as if something's floating above the carpet right behind this weird rat-loving kid. Um, yeah. Which, Maybe it's Tony. Yeah. Which, you know, also brings up a, a, a side note point is I, I said rat-loving, but we never really know the relationship between Tony and Danny. I mean, we can assume that it's like a fun kid and his imaginary friend but we don't really know like we're never really you're doing the demon reading then it's a demon that that possesses him and takes him over yeah basically because because the demon will be like danny's not here right Mm -hmm. like danny's not here like he's unavailable he can't come to the phone right now right like that's who's in charge of that relationship and i a counter argument to the to the demon theory though would also be that and i'm not saying the demon theory is right oh yeah I mean, I guess we should put on the table, this is all us just kind of freeform speculating. So we're not really saying this is the thing I think is really happening in the film. There are like 15 yeah. theories as to what The Shining is actually about, yeah. which is what makes this fun to talk about with your friends. Absolutely. And that's all Kubrick films, really. I mean, like, there's they're not very like point A to point B, if that makes sense. And um, in a counter to the whole demon tony coming at you is tony also seems to warn wendy and danny that things are going south you know like the whole red rum thing maybe could be read as like ooh, tony's getting really pumped about murder about to go down Mm -hmm. but it also seems like something of like because wendy is the one who sees red rum scrawled out on her door and in the mirror sees that it spells murder and is it's Mm -hmm. almost like a warning for her like a kind of like your husband's about to just go nuts Um, yeah the alternative theory is that tony's a really really weird guardian angel (laughs) (laughs) just really weird like that he's because tony does seem to want to try to take care of danny sometimes Mm -hmm. it's very strange yeah and you also have a third theory Of which this is a psychological break, you know. I think. Yes. I think this yes. one 
is the least plausible just because we know for sure the shining exists but yeah let's delve let's delve into that reading though. Mm-hmm. let's do a quick we only have about 25 minutes left in the podcast let's 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 delve into a few major readings the first one which neither you or i fully ascribe to is that this is simply a psychological thriller mm-hmm. so let's read it through that lens first i'll 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 give a quick you know, version of my reading of the psychological thriller, and uh, and then you can kind of fill it in. Um, we know throughout the course of the film that Jack has abused Danny, and and probably Wendy in the past. That Jack is experiencing a psychological break uh, due to isolation, stress, whatever else is degenerative about him. His long um, holiday from alcohol, and then return to it. Danny has experienced a psychological break because of the abuse suffered by Jack. And that for the most part, Wendy is a reliable narrator, not, not experiencing a psychological break. And that her, her horror as the events unfold is the appropriate reaction, right? She's the same, the same person. And she's with, you know, her little boy who has multiple personalities and with her husband who is psychotic. So that's the general reading of this is a movie about descending into psychosis. What would you add to that? To be charitable, I mean, Danny does exhibit symptoms of abuse. Um, They're... Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's just part of the... That's just part of it. So, I I mean, it's not that the reading is completely groundless. Um, Danny also, with Tony, there are incidents of children kind of using another persona or or some type of personhood that kind of, quote-unquote, protects them from realities. So, like, Tony being like, Danny can't talk right now, could simply be Danny's mind being like, I am not Mm -hmm. going to deal with this. And mm-hmm. in real world evidence of this, um, Kubrick himself never let Danny, real Danny, the actor who played Danny, um, be near any of the gruesome set pieces. So like when he's responding to the twins, he was just in a hallway. Um, and in fact, he didn't see the film until he was 16 and realized, oh, it's like a horror movie because mm-hmm. he was so unaware. And Kubrick was like notoriously protective of his psyche because he didn't want him to Mm -hmm, have mm -hmm. to see any of this stuff even if it was just hollywood you know like make believe Um, good good move by stan yeah um however as we mentioned before there's just too many weird things going Mm -hmm. on with Mm -hmm. the spirits and the visions but most importantly and i know you wanted to talk about this with the architecture of the hotel itself is yeah, just so unless odd. this is a completely psychotic, uh, unreliable narrator movie, right? Unless there is no objectivity to any shot, right? Mm-hmm. Unless we've completely entered into the psychosis of Jack from the beginning of the film. There are some really interesting things, especially pointed out by, by the, the documentary Room 237. The spatial aspects of the hotel itself. There are external and internal inconsistencies just in in terms of the laws of physics with the hotel there are shots of the hotel that show it having an extra section in the middle that then when they build out the model of the hotel to shoot the the closer up scenes doesn't exist 
So that's one thing. So there are spaces that are both there and not there. Now, you could say, well, that's just a mistake. That's just a goof. But return to the beginning of our conversation. Nothing that Stanley Kubrick does is a mistake. He is doing things for a very particular reason. He is doing things because he believes that they will communicate the message he is trying to communicate. And so he very carefully shows you the layout of at least three floors of the hotel through those shots we were talking about, those floating steady cam shots, following Danny on his his big wheel around. And it and it carefully maps out for you where certain things are. And then Kubrick, throughout the course of the film, subverts that geography. He subverts those spatial laws. For instance, really fascinating to me is that the manager's office, uh, where Jack comes for his interview at the beginning, has two windows at the back of the office. Those two windows are letting in bright sunshine. But when Danny rides around the, the, the floor that that office is located on, you see that that, that office is completely internal to the building. There are no external it is impossible that there would be external windows in that office. And so that's that's some of the hints that you're getting that space is not normal in this hotel. There, the dimensionality doesn't play by the rules that you're used to in this hotel. And I think that's very important. It reminds me of a film called Event Horizon, which was kind of a space horror film in which uh, from, I think, the 90s, where a um, a ship is going out to look for another ship uh, in sort of far space using this kind of teleportation um, technology where you're almost bending space-time. You find out over the course of the film that that this technology is ripping holes in the space-time continuum and letting another dimension, namely hell, what we would perceive as hell, kind of leak into our reality. And that the ship that they're on has now, as the, as the movie progressive progresses entered into hell and they start to have these crazy things happen but it reminded me when i was rewatching the shining of the movie event horizon because there are things that are entering this space that are impossible if you hold to a purely psychological or material kind of a worldview so that was something that i think confounds any non any purely non-supernatural reading of this film i agree i i think that it even if you're not consciously aware of those, I think you kind of have to see the film a couple times or know that it's happening to really have that thought of, oh, that's weird. It, it subconsciously, it, it just makes the whole place seem not fake because it, it doesn't come off as unrealistic, but unrealistic in the, in the sense of not able to exist in reality. Like mm -hmm. it has this, impossible nature um which is, is also scary. i just thought of i just thought of this so in stephen king's version there's no hedge maze i'm you know let the listener understand there's a there's a hedge maze next to the hotel in the movie and it's a maze made of hedges you wander through you try to solve the maze it's very creepy the final kind of scary action sequence happens in and surrounding the hedge maze but there's something hedge mazy about the hotel space too as as kubrick lays it out would would you agree with that nick mm -hmm. 
especially how we are shown the layout of the hotel, which is, again, a subjective steady cam Danny shot. So we get to really see everything in the hotel as Danny is riding around exploring it, almost like he, you know, and he turns right, he turns left, he turns right again. It's very maze-like as he's going through it. And because we have that first, not first person, but that subjective view, it's like going through a maze because we don't, Mm -hmm. you know. And even more interesting than that, there's also a scene where Jack is looking down at this kind of model of the hedge maze that's in the room that he's been writing in. And there's this weird line, there's a transition or maybe... Jack's actually seeing this, but Wendy and Danny are going through the hedge maze. And this is before it gets... Physically. Yeah. Before it gets too cold. And you can see their little, you know, forms walking Mm -hmm. through it as Jack is kind of looming above it, seeing Mm -hmm. the miniature hedge maze. And so I I think... I don't know. And and it transitions into them being the hedge maze, so you don't know if it's just like, oh, that's a fun way of moving to the next scene or if it's Mm -hmm. something no it's more it's definitely more than that um (laughs) so we could we can say we can say to close out this theory that in in kubrick's shining physical spaces and head spaces overlap and interact in ambiguous ways all right so we've talked about a purely psychological reading of the film, which we've kind of both said, mm, there are elements that fit with this, but but it's a stretch because of some of the... Kubrick makes it impossible to fully carry out that reading because he does some things with physics, with space and time, with with supernatural happenings that are, it would be very hard to pull off. But there are some other readings that I think help us see what Kubrick is doing. Maybe it doesn't explain the internal mechanics of plot in space and what's happening to the characters. But there are some other sort of um, social readings that maybe illuminate what Kubrick's message was. And I think you have kind of put together an interesting, what some would call a feminist reading. Could you sh- could you share the your sort of feminist reading of The Shining with us? Yes. Uh, I think it's kind of building on another... Uh, historical reading that I'll just lightly go into. Um, It's one that was, I would say, popularized by the documentary you had referenced earlier, but when they're introduced to that, when the family's introduced to the hotel, the manager says, oh, you know, this place was supposedly built on an Indian burial ground. Which is a trope. That's a horror trope. Which is a trope, but um, yeah. And that's interesting. I'll, I'll bring that up. (laughs) <laughs> again but beyond that there's also the, the the documentary does a good job of being like some of the cans in the refrigerator have like a native american chieftain kind of logo mm-hmm. on them uh there's a lot of uh native american art throughout the entire of, building yeah. and i think some people have have kind of read this as this place, the bad things happening in this place, the suffering and the violence and psychotic uh, breaks that not only Jack experienced, but apparently a caretaker previously experienced and murdered his family as well, are all the result of this past sin, this like stain of injustice. And 
That's wrong. Specifically injustice done by the hands of white men against Native Americans. Yes. And kind of building a resort on a sacred ground is like almost a final straw of... Isn't this hilarious? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, so funny. Like, it has such a great view. Um, And I think that that reading can't really be ignored because it is brought up in dialogue um and because it is a trope i think kubrick is aware <laughs> of that mm-hmm. but i i don't think that really but it 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 goes along with what you've said before which is tro- uh, kubrick takes tropes more seriously than even people who kind of came up with them mm-hmm. he goes what if there really is a connection between this place was built on an Indian burial ground. And what would that actually look like? Like if there was a connection, it would be something more detailed and nuanced and something where it's like, wow, these these white people have come to inhabit the space of Native Americans for fun <laughs> or for gain or for whatever as a job to make money. And they're going to suffer psychologically as a result of being surrounded by the reminders of the unjust deaths of people that have been oppressed yeah which is so much more nuanced than something like poltergeist which like i yeah i love poltergeist but that follows the trope too of like you built these weird crappy 70 homes on top of graves or whatever like you didn't move the bodies that whole trope and Mm -hmm. that's more like there's this weird superstition. It's magic. Yeah. It's, magic. it's like the superstition of like graves are sacred and you shouldn't disturb mm-hmm. them. And if you do, the kind of the cosmos will punish you. This is more yeah. like there was a great injustice done and you're reaping yep. the consequences of that. Like a real injustice, not like. Yeah. Yeah. Kubrick's interested not in the the spell that's cast, but in the moral and ethical implications. Mm-hmm. And the spell's just kind of the medium of those ethical mm-hmm. consequences. So we don't have time to go into all the details of the Native American mm-hmm. genocide theory, but you you relate to that in your own theorizing in terms of kind of a feminist interpretation. Yeah. And I want to say loosely feminist. Um, it's I think the reason why I would call it feminist is because I think that the the central figure of the entire movie is Wendy. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that Danny is sympathetic because of who he is. I mean, he is an innocent child, so we Mm -hmm. sympathize with him for having to go through it, but he doesn't really have a lot of emotional uh, range. Well, he's more of an object than a subject. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We, we see, like, like you said, even as he has these visions so that we, the audience, can see the visions, we're always seeing his face, too. Mm-hmm. Like, we're seeing him see something. Um, it seems that Kubrick more intentionally made Wendy the audience avatar. And I and I think that is why he made her <laughs> do that scene 127 times, because... It was. It's important for when for us to really, really understand what is going on internally with Wendy, and so yeah. And I and I don't want to be I don't want to be cruel or mean, or 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 flippant about this. But there's something horrifying about her horrified face. Yes, there's something haunting about the way that Kubrick got that actress to 
move her face and the just the color of her hair and the clothes she wore and the lighting and the makeup she looks like she's being psychologically spiritually murdered like yeah. her face is so disturbing and she i mean part in my language but she looks like shit like and and i think that's part of the seriousness of the, of taking the genre seriously is like normally in horror movies when these people are being murdered they still have like really good skin and they look yep. great and they like maybe their hair's yep. a little messed up but and their clothes are yep. torn revealing their cleavage looks pale yeah. and sweaty and he doesn't try to make her look attractive no. and so my reading is windy centric as i said and it starts, I started noticing this about maybe the third or fourth time I saw it, where Wendy and Jack, throughout the entire film, have a very strange relationship. Um, and this, you wouldn't characterize it as loving. I would not. It seems more of like a tolerance. Like, you know, you're here, I'm here, we have this kid. Like, maybe something in the past was great, but... We're just trying to get through this. But she also seems really hopeful because when she's talking to the psychiatrist, um, she she defends, not like super defends, but defends her husband. So when we said that Jack abused uh, Danny, he we know of one particular incident where he broke Danny's arm. That's why the psychiatrist is talking to Danny. He like yanked it. He like yanked it out of the socket yeah. or something. That's the ligament damage, I think, was was part of it. Mm -hmm. And that's why... Because he, okay. he, he had a drinking problem. Yes, he had a drinking problem. and Or we learned that he had a drinking problem through Wendy. So while they're talking to the psychiatrist lady, and the psychiatrist kind of turns it on Wendy and says, like, oh, well, like, your husband, question mark. And she goes into this almost apology for Jack. Of oh, like, yeah, it is. He's, it's an apology. He's trying so hard, and, like, yeah, he had this drinking problem, and he would never hurt Danny. Like, we, he would never do something like that. Mm -hmm. He is He's a good man. He just has these troubles, and we're going to get through this, and he's getting a new job, and we're all so excited, and yay. And I'm more worried about the rat living in my son's mouth than I mm -hmm. am about, you know, child abuse or at least it seems like that in some ways and i'm not saying she's a bad mother i'm just saying i think she's trying to be really positive and trying to make this work um yeah and as the film keeps going jack you realize how condescending and already uh angry jack is before the stuff even gets crazy yeah. and i i really noticed this too when i started reading into why stephen king dislikes this movie and he thought that the casting of jack nicholson as jack torrance was a really bad choice because jack nicholson obviously is infamous for ha being just a psychotic screaming lunatic in films um and one, one flew over the cuckoo's nest yeah the joker i mean the joker wasn't out yet but um things like that where he is that smile and those eyebrows mm -hmm. and all that stuff um, he just looks really, really crazy already. And the way... Yeah, it's t it's tipping off the audience to what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. In King's mind, it's saying, this guy's going to go crazy. Because remember, for King, the whole story is, this is just an average Joe alcoholic writer who happens to be uh, put into this horrible, haunted, slash possessed environment that makes him go crazy. But with Kubrick, I really do believe, because... 
from the beginning, he starts off the movie with us finding out that Jack uh, has abused Danny. And he doesn't ever show a side of Jack that isn't already kind of distant and upset. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you said something earlier uh, when you and I were talking before the podcast off mic. Mm -hmm. Um, You said something that I thought was really pertinent and, and accurate in that whatever is in the lookout, right? The overlook. Whatever the overlook, sorry. Whatever is in the overlook, whatever force or dimension or demon or psychological factor is not the cause of Jack's descent into madness. It's a catalyst. I thought that was a really important point. Yeah. And it seems to be a catalyst for a specific type of person. Um, Mm. A father, a working father, a uh, patriarch. Because we know we have a history where a caretaker did this before. All of this happened before yep. where he murdered yep. his family. Yep. And so basically the, the, the core of... So it, exacer- it, it exacerbates the abuses of the patriarch, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. And so basically the core of it is the, the movie is a, ref- is a reflection on the willingness or kind of the necessity to overlook a type of violence. So to overlook, yeah, cough, cough, wink, wink, everyone. Um, so when you go to the overlook, you overlook certain things. Yeah, that, a that's a happy having... accident. I definitely was not mm-hmm. like, oh, the word overlook. Let's think about this. But mm-hmm. um, it is. It's great that it works. Uh, but it's basically Wendy is in a situation because of who she is, because of her status, that she has to overlook Jack's violent tendencies and his aggressive behavior to make her family work. Mm-hmm. She's trying really hard to make everything work. Likewise, the hotel is overlooking the the violence of uh, Native American genocide, um, yeah. kind of pushing it behind because that was the past. And, you know, we can be fair and say no one at the hotel probably has, you know, active ill will towards Native Americans. You know, mm-hmm. it's more of just an a willingness to to snuff out violence to kind of make it seem less bad than it is and wendy does yep. the exact same thing and i think the reason why it's a feminist reading is because jack's descent into violence is always this kind of i'm a providing male type yep. rationale so there's that really mm-hmm. famous scene the staircase scene that we just keep bringing up over and over again, where he's yelling at her, explaining to her what, um, what he thinks she does. And she says something along the lines of, you know, I just need some time to think, like, let's sit down and just think about this. Like, what are we doing? And he says, all you do is think you don't do anything. Like you just sit around and think all day. What's a few more minutes going to do? Because, as his it's like the most intense <laughs> version of of a of a patriarchal man in charge woman being reduced to little girl conversation yeah. that that you can that you can portray and he does it other times where he's like do you know what a contract is i signed yeah. an agreement i'm i have to work like i have to work and even 
when she starts really figuring out that he's nuts and she reads Mm -hmm. the book he was working on and it's just all work and no play, you know, make Jack a bad boy, whatever. It's that's. But I think it's such an important moment because it reveals, especially for your feminist reading, it reveals that much of the time that men are claiming that they're working they're actually not working Mm -hmm. that much of much of the pressure that men put on women because they say, well, you don't know what it's like to have to work so hard to kind of bring in another piece of art. It's the madman thing. It's the, the five martini lunch, right? It's the throwing a ball against the wall, like just hanging out. And it's that because white men took advantage of other people to such a huge extent, they actually weren't working that hard. They were just claiming to work that hard. Mm -hmm. And and that's what the text in those pages reveal and the reason why i said it's pseudo feminist is because i also think that kubrick does a very good job at making jack somewhat of a victim of this system as well it's definitely not every jack's having such a great time and he's loving this new like isolated patriarchy where he has ghosts servants and he can just sit in a room all day well and there's that scene where he breaks down because he had the dream where he was hurting his wife and and kid and he he's he's crying and he's he's repentant kind of he doesn't he doesn't like this version of himself and she's kind of cradling him and he he's horrified by his own by the depths of where he's going to go yeah and i think that makes a point towards this is more of a of a of a critique of these of the systems in place that allow this kind of behavior to happen because not only i mean obviously there are are real victims um danny being one of them uh and if he if jack would have succeeded in murdering his wife and child obviously they would have been very real victims to the system but the men the fathers uh the providers are also kind of signed up for this without their consent either so there's it's this weird and as jack becomes more and more a part of the history of the hotel i think almost culminating in the final famous scene of the zoom in from the photo from decades and decades ago of some party in the roaring 20s where he's at the front of the photo you know yeah it's and there's like eight different readings we could do oh yeah and and like i said earlier this is completely speculative i would not (laughs) bet my life on this i just i just Mm -hmm. after seeing it a couple times and just being fascinated by the fact that wendy is the scariest part of the movie to me her reactions her holding that stupid knife screaming while he's chopping down that door is just it's not scary because jack nicholson's putting his face to the door it's scary because she's she is freaking out like freaking out and i don't know i just really i i've always i've always sympathized with that and i've I just thought I'd explore it more in a theoretical nature. So so there are so many theories we didn't get to. We might have to actually someday do a Shining Part 2 episode. We haven't talked about the Minotaur theory. Oh, my God. From t- which there's mazes and there's Perseus references and there's there's Minotaur and Centaur. There's all these different things. So we'll have to talk about that at some point. Uh, we didn't even get to my Seven Deadly Sins uh, theory that the, the, the hotel is a catalyst for all the sins in Jack's life. Um, that that Kubrick loves to explore, like the human depravity kind of a thing. But since we um, we're over an hour and we've we've gotten to the place where we've discussed some of the major theories, um, Kubrick continues to be a really really important American artist, even though he's passed. 
um, well, I'm an art, artist for Americans, an artist for uh, cinema, and um, his exploration of some of the um, some of the deepest, darkest parts of humanity um, continues to fascinate. I would like us to to someday uh, dig deeper into a Clockwork Orange, which we haven't even mentioned in this podcast. Eyes wide shut. But, eyes wide shut. Oh yeah, yeah. We have to do eyes wide shut too. So well, Kubrick will be a ghost who haunts us for quite some time. But for now, uh, this has been Ryan. And Nick. And you'll hear from us next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.